everyone. Uh, my name is Adrian, and uh, despite uh, such a heavy topic, I'm really glad that we're here today because I think we have, the Bible gives us a lot to say about suffering. Uh, and so um, I'm going to pray right now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, we do give you uh, thanks uh, that your word uh, doesn't just give us historical stories, uh, but gives us uh, laments like the one before us today. And so we pray as we consider. Uh, the deep sadness that Job faced, uh, that you'll help us think about how we might face our sadness. Uh, And we pray as we consider his uh, great sadness, we might remember Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us. Uh, And so please, God, uh, use uh, these hard words uh, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I've got to say, in all the times I've suffered, I've always really longed for words to say. I've always longed for words to say. I'm not entirely sure why that is. I'm not sure why I was just never really content with silence. Maybe it's something about grief and loss. The experience of it is so overwhelming that it takes so much of your soul that maybe the only way to get some relief is for it to just, well, overflow. Overflow with messy, raw words. And so I remember, I remember lying in a park in, in the city on a lunch break going through a pretty hard time with tears in my eyes and I listened to one simple song on repeat, Oh God, where are you now? Oh God, where are you now? I remember walking to the hospital after a long day's work and I sung out loud, I didn't really care if people could hear. It was just a simple line, everything is all right. Please tell me that it's all right. I remember driving home with the music up far too loud and I was just screaming, you don't need that disease. You don't need that disease. And I remember driving at night to pick up his things, murmuring, all has been washed in black, tattooed everything, all the love gone bad, turned my world to black. I've always been that person. I've always looked for words to express grief. Uh, Maybe you're the same, maybe you're not, but today's sermon, if you haven't guessed it, it's going to be pretty heavy. Uh, It's going to hurt a little. But I'm really glad you're here because uh, while we might want to avoid suffering and hard times, our suffering really is truly unavoidable. And suffering really does open our eyes, doesn't it, to just how messed up and broken this world is. A lot of world philosophies and religions, they really struggle to engage with suffering. Uh, Buddhism, for example, it attempts to kind of go deep within and seek inner peace and just ignore suffering. Atheism, well, you can't really give any personal meaning to suffering. But Christians, uh, we don't have all the answers But we don't ignore suffering. Indeed, we've been given words. Uh, We've been given words that help us. Words that give voice to our suffering. Words that are kind of better than the songs that I sung as I suffer, uh, that kind of just go out into the air. But we're given words that we can speak, that we can cry, that we can scream to a personal, loving God. We're given the words of Job. Uh, And in this book, Job, the main character, he suffers intensely. And Job, he gives us words to cry as we suffer. But the book of Job, like I said last week, it's not about suffering in general. Uh, For this book to be precious, for it to be of greater worth, we need to be more precise. It's a book about the righteous one suffering undeservedly. And in this, our hearts and minds are drawn to Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us. And as we consider him, we're not only given words to cry as we suffer, but we're given something more precious than gold, more pure than friendship, we're given hope. 
Uh, but before we get there, we must sit with Job in the ash heap. Uh, first thing, suffering is lonely, but with the righteous servant, you are never alone. Uh, last year for the Australians, really, maybe, maybe for the whole world, it was the year of lockdown. It was a year of isolation, a year that I think really highlighted the pain of loneliness. Uh, for many, especially those who lived alone, it was hard to not have anyone to hug. It was hard to be physically alone. You know, as much as we zoomed, you know, that cloud of loneliness, it kind of just hung in the air. Last week, we read about how Job had everything taken from him. His possessions, his people, everything. He now sits on an ash heap, kind of like the rubbish, the ruins of all he once had. And he is, he is alone. In verse 11, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, hear about Job's trouble. They set out from their homes, they make a plan, and they come to Job to comfort him, to ease his pain. I'm not really sure how long it took uh, for them to arrive, but later in chapter 7, Job recounts how he endured months of emptiness, months of futility. For months, Job was alone. Now his friends arrive and you might think, great, he's no longer alone. But when they arrive, they see a man of sorrows, a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain. They could, verse 12, hardly recognize him. His suffering was so great that it kind of had changed him. Maybe he still looked like Job, but his loss, his loss had kind of taken something from him. And so as they arrive, Job, well, he's still alone, and they stand at a distance. They weep loudly, they raise their voices loudly and cry out. They tear their robes, and then they sprinkle dust on their heads, a symbol of death and mortality. They treat Job like a corpse. Sure, he may be living, but his suffering has made him as good as dead. Verse 13, they come near, they sit with him on the ground, but Job... Well, he's no longer alone, but he is lonely. Uh, for seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to Job. Some might say that silence is good uh, and his friends were wise. Uh, that's, I think that's right. It's good to sit with people in their deep suffering. But this silence, this is a very long silence. It's eerie. Seven days and seven nights. And in the Bible, comfort always always comes through words. I think of our God uh, when he speaks in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. While some silence may have been wise, this silence, it's too much. This silence speaks of just how great Job's suffering was. His friends can't even imagine what words they might say that could bring comfort and ease pain. Job is not alone physically, but he is lonely in his suffering. And I wonder if you can relate to that. Uh, when things are uh, hard for you or you're going through suffering, one of the worst feelings, at least this is from my experience, is not necessarily what you've lost, but the fact that no one truly understands you. No one knows what you truly miss. Suffering is lonely. It was lonely for the righteous servant Job. It was lonely for the righteous servant Jesus. Uh, just before Jesus died, uh, he, he asked his friends, sit here while I go over there and pray. But when he returned, he found his disciples sleeping. He was alone. And then on the cross, 
while even though God was always with him, he still cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was alone in his suffering. But Christopher Ash writes this, there is a deep sense in which the lonely sufferings of Jesus Christ means that no believer today is called to enter Job's loneliness in its full depth. As someone has put it, suffering encloses a man in solitude. Between Job and his friends, an abyss was cleft. They regarded him with astonishment as a strange being. They could no longer get to him. Only one, only one, Jesus Christ, could cross this abyss, descend into the abyss of misery, plunge into the deepest hell. Friends, even in your lonely despair, God's righteous servant understands your loneliness like no other. And so endure the loneliness of suffering, knowing that you are never truly alone. Seven days and seven nights of no words, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and he spoke. You might expect Job to curse God. You know, after months of emptiness, after a week of silence, maybe now he'll just give up, he'll just curse God. But instead... He cursed the day of his birth. And this we can learn that we can cry out because the righteous one cried. Now, I think there is a tendency in Christian circles to always be happy. Uh, we kind of confuse the idea of deep joy with shallow happiness. And so often, we kind of keep things happy. Uh, this is a prime example. I love youth group. I love it. Uh, but youth group is a prime example. There's lots of cheering. There's lots of energy. And the word of the decade, there's lots of good vibes. I love it. I love it. But it doesn't marry well with, well, human experience. Or even, you can think about the songs we sing at church. Uh, please do message me after this. I'd love to find them. But where are the sad songs? Uh, where are the slow songs? Now, you might say, you might argue with me, that's because we have a great hope. Amen. Uh, but we do need to allow space for people to be sad. Because if we don't, not only will we be sad, but we'll be guilty. We'll feel guilty that we're not as happy as we think we should be. Not only that, Job, God's righteous servant, he teaches us to cry, to cry out. In 3 verse 10, he really cries, I don't know if you picked it up, he, he cries impossible things. He looks back to the past and he wishes that past history can be changed. May the day of my birth perish in verse 3. And that night that said a boy is conceived. In verse 6, he basically says, May the calendar marked with my birthday be torn up and then deleted from history. In verse 7, he says, May the, the womb that brought life, you know, a blessing, uh, may the womb that brought life be barren, empty. It seems his impossible grief has led him to just impossible words, impossible cries. And I think deep suffering has a way of doing that. It, it leads us to kind of crying out things which... Well, they don't always make sense, which kind of is one reason why when you read Job 3, you've got to read it kind of carefully. This is just impossible lament. Uh, one author wrote this, a man, of, uh, a man suffering the torment of physical and mental pain does not think logically or progressively. His thoughts are instinctive. They fly out like sparks struck from the iron as it lies between the hammer of God and the anvil of life. Job cries impossible cries. He cries for history to be changed. And at this point, it's important to note this, like Job's eyes, they're just, they're just cast 
firmly into the past. He looks back. It's like with everything gone, he has no way of looking forward. He has no hope to cling to. He has no future to dream of. And so his only option is to look back and to cry an impossible cry. May the past be changed. Or to put it another way, may creation be undone. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But then God said, let there be light, and there was light. But now Job cries about his birthday, about his day of creation. Verse 4, may that day, that day where there was light, may that day, may it turn to darkness. May God not care about it. May no light shine in it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. May the impossible be done. May creation be reversed. Job is crying out with an impossible cry. Why? Verse 10, because his birth meant trouble had not been hidden from his eyes. Because his birth meant trouble had not been hidden from his eyes. Job's great suffering causes him to cry. And I wonder, I wonder how you feel about Job's cry. If I'm honest, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I think that might be because grief is uncomfortable. But it's not just that. His words, they're just, they're kind of just too much. I mean, asking for your birthday to be deleted from history just doesn't seem right. Yet, this is God's righteous servant who cries. And I'm pretty confident of this. God does not condemn these words. Uh, these are the righteous one crying. What is more, Jesus Christ also cried. Uh, after his friend Lazarus died, he saw Mary, Lazarus' sister, and others weeping. And we can read in John chapter 11, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He was stirred up. It was like his soul was angry at what he saw. It's like he was angry that trouble was not hidden from his eyes. The perfect son of God, the eternal one, Jesus Christ, was in turmoil. And he cried. John eleven thirty five. 35, he wept. Your God is not a distant God. Your saviour is not a cold companion. He is a close, compassionate king. And he cried. Which means you can cry out too. You can cry out impossible things. Because our God and our Saviour is big enough, compassionate enough and loving enough to handle your grief. Cry. Cry because the righteous one cried. Next, uh, question. Uh, question knowing the righteous one. Question. Have you ever questioned God? Uh, have you ever asked him why he's doing what he's doing? I've got to say, I don't often do. And even this last week, I've kind of tried a little. Like, what would it be like to question God about things that I've gone through in the past? I just, it just feels wrong to me. <laughs> like I'm somehow becoming like God and in my questions I'm kind of judging him. I've raised myself up above him and I'm questioning the God of the universe. It just doesn't, just doesn't sit with me. But now Job questions God and his questions here, they're unfiltered and they are raw. Uh, verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me? and breast that I might be nursed. He, he no longer cries an impossible cry. 
he's kind of like he knows he actually can't delete his birthday and so he just questions why 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 did you give me life my life is so full of anguish so full of trouble why did you give me life and so his mind it turns to the grave and there he sees kings and rulers at rest and maybe he sees what his previous life was like I mean he was the greatest man of all the east and so now he kind of looks to the grave and he, he sees people like him and they're lying down at peace they're, they're asleep he sees an end to trouble he really sees an end to anguish in verse 17 to 19 he then reflects again on the oppressors and the oppressed and he like they both end up in the same place I wonder verse 18 if he identifies with those captives after all, it was the Sabines and the Chaldeans who had attacked him and taken his possessions and taken his slaves and servants. Uh, but now, as he looks to the grave, he sees in verse 17 that the wicked ceased from trouble, which means there'd be no trouble for him. And there'd be no trouble for anyone who was once oppressed by the wicked. See, this is what Job desperately desires. He wants the turmoil and the trouble to end. And so, in his grief, he really questions. Later in the book, he will ask the question really strongly, why is he the righteous one suffering? But right now, he's really asking a different question. He's simply asking the question, why? Why life? Why life when it's so hard? Why life when troubles without number surround me? Why life when my heart fails within me? Why? See, Job, he questions. But importantly, he perseveres in faith as he questions. See, he, there's something he didn't do. He doesn't curse God and die like Satan tempted, but rather he perseveres in life and he questions. This is how the righteous suffer. As Jesus fell with his face to the ground, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may you take this cup, may you take this trouble, uh, may it be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I know Jesus, he's not quite questioning God, but he is desiring another way. He's asking God for the suffering, for the cup, for the trouble to be taken away. He's asking for his troubles to cease. And it's important to note this because questioning God means it's, it's not a lack of faith. Rather, as Job suffers, as he questions, it's really important to keep seeing what he did not do. He did not curse God. He did not run away from God. He did not give up on God. He turned to God. He asked questions. He endured suffering and he persevered in faith. And so friends, as we suffer, question God. Don't give up on him. Question him in faith and persevere uh, like our righteous one did. Lastly, long, long for rest, but look beyond the grave. Uh, Anne and I, we're often watching a TV series. Currently, we're watching a very dorky one. I won't tell you what it is. Uh, it's filled with corny jokes and bad storylines, but even in what's meant to be a comedy, uh, suffering kind of finds its way to get in there and get amongst it. Uh, in a recent episode, the main character's girlfriend dies, and he is devastated. Uh, but almost immediately, he, turns to, he returns to work. And as he walks in, he kind of says, you know, I've got to keep active, I've got to keep doing things. Uh, it's a TV show. But I, I think many people are like that after suffering. Got to keep active, got to keep doing things. 
And I thought in the past, this is mainly to do with taking our mind off things. I think that's true. But in Job 3, I've wondered if suffering is a bit of a paradox. Uh, it stops us in our tracks, but it causes us to be restless. Stops us in our tracks, I can't do anything, but then we're restless at the same time. Because throughout this lament, Job, he just longs for rest. He yearns for rest. He yearns for peace, for quiet, for still. But all he finds around him is turmoil. His world it shakes, his heart breaks. There's chaos on the outside, there's chaos on the inside. Uh, rather than his daily meals being just food and water, which don't sound great, but sound better than what he actually has. Because verse 24, sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. Sighing and groaning, it's just, they're just two weaker translations. Uh, this is screaming and roaring. Uh, the same words in Hebrew uh, will be used later to describe the roaring of a lion. This is Job's daily food, screaming and yelling to God. Uh, and you can just imagine how exhausted Job must be after all his tears. I read about a man this week whose dad died, and he said in the first week after his death, he hardly cried, but then this avalanche of pain hit him, and it comes just like, it, it just poured out from him. He screamed, he, his throat hurt, his eyes ate, and then once it was over, it wasn't a long kind of episode, he just fell in an exhausted heap. I think maybe Job is like this man. He's exhausted, but he's not at rest. All that he feared, verse 25, has come upon him. So he's got kind of, you know, your daily food of sighing uh, and groaning. And he's got the clothes of worry. They just surround him. He's restless. And so once again he questions. And I mean, this, this could be the darkest part of the, this lament. Verse 20, why is life given to those in misery? And life to the bitter of soul. To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. See, Job, once again, he looks to death as his answer to rest, and it's a terribly hopeless and sad place. It, it's almost as if uh, all options for rest have been exhausted, and so he really, he, he can only think of one thing, and that's death. Now, for some of us, uh, hearing these words of Job may make us wonder about the issue of suicide, which is a very important matter that the Bible says very important things about. Uh, and if you would like to talk about that, please uh, let me know, let Wal know, let anyone know. We'd love to talk with you and we'd love to pray with you. But here in Job 3, I don't think the point is in so much that Job is thinking of ending his own life. Rather, he's simply acknowledging that in his grief, death just looks better than life. And when Job talks about death and rest, he's not talking about how you and I might talk about uh, rest. He's not talking about eternal life like a believer in Jesus might. He's not thinking about eternal, joy-filled, good rest. In chapter 17, after this kind of wave of intense grief has passed, he talks, I think, more truly of the grave. Is a place where he says he will lay out his bed in the realm of darkness. That's a place where there's no light and there's no life. The rest that Job is longing for uh, is not life continuing in joy and perfection. The rest he longs for is simply life stopping so that trouble is no more. See, in Job's grief and desperation, he, he looks just to the one last place that he can look, 
at this point in his grief, he just looks to the grave. But you and I, we are not in the same place as Job. Uh, We are not people that are before Jesus Christ. We are people that have come after Jesus Christ. And so in our hopelessness, we don't look to the grave. We look beyond the grave to what Jesus Christ has won for us. I, I find this kind of startling and wondrous and amazing, but when you read Job 3, just read it again later and just consider that Jesus Christ suffered Job 3. That Jesus Christ truly, like no other human in all of history, can actually speak these words of lament because darkness claimed Jesus. Trouble overwhelmed Jesus. Our sin burdened Jesus. He suffered hell on the cross. He sat in the ash heap of ruins. He was buried in a grave. He suffered Job 3. He suffered Job 3 to give you and me hope beyond the grave. It's beautiful, really. Suffering did not have the last word with Jesus because he rose from the grave and so suffering will not have the last word for us. I know it might feel like it. I know it might feel like suffering is all there ever will be, but I tell you truly and confidently, because of Jesus Christ, suffering will not have the last word. Christ suffered for us to end suffering for us. He has one life forever. He has one life beyond the grave. He has one life beyond this world of tears. Good life. Rest-filled life, life with no pain, no darkness, no turmoil, no trouble, no tears. And so as we suffer, as we cry, as we question, as we long for rest, we suffer like Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Suffering hurts. If you haven't experienced it, although I'm really sure you have, you will know it. Suffering hurts. It's lonely. It's restless. But thanks be to God that he has given us these words as we suffer. Because we can cry out. We can cry out because the righteous one cried out. We can question God because, well, the righteous one questioned God. And we can long for and look forward to life beyond the grave. Because Jesus, our righteous sufferer, suffered. He suffered for us to give us life where suffering will be no more.